0: to today's Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We're recording this one on Thursday, May 14th. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're happy to have joining us today, Jonathan Meir. Jonathan is a professor of economics at Texas A&M University, where he is the private enterprise research center professor and the department's director of undergraduate programs. Jonathan is also a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He received his PhD from Stanford in 2009. And strangely enough, unless I'm mistaken, that's actually the same year in which I last had a haircut. His undergraduate degree is from Princeton. His research is broad ranging, covering the minimum wage, charitable giving, which we'll talk more about in a couple of minutes, and the economics of education. Every year, he teaches an online principles of microeconomics course for about 2,500 Texas A&M students. Glenn, Jonathan, how are you both today? Great. Doing great. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, we're we're very happy you're able to take time to do this with us. I thought we might begin by asking Jonathan about his experiences with online teaching. Jonathan, obviously, you're a veteran of teaching large classes online. Were there any particular challenges in teaching online this semester with Texas A&M closing down the campus?
1: Uh, so, of course, it was very challenging because I wanted to be mindful of the barriers that my students were facing. Uh, one of the reasons that I really take pleasure in, in teaching at Texas A&M is that we're about 25% first-generation college. There's a lot of students who don't have a lot of slack resources. Uh, and so I had to to really be aware that some students were in places without internet access or they were at home with multiple siblings and and either no steady internet access or you know maybe just one or even no devices and so trying to be flexible there uh, and even if that meant you know maybe some students are are giving into some slacking tendencies students who did have the resources I I think that was an okay trade-off to make this this semester for sure and so in, in addition in addition to that, uh, my online course, there really wasn't much to change because it was online other than the exams being in person. And again, they're thinking through uh, academic integrity issues and what we're capable of doing in, in such large classes and just the trade off of, of pushing students to uh, maintain academic integrity, but not punish students who were maybe in areas with spotty internet or really trying to trying to be too too strict about it. Uh, in the longer run, it, you know, maybe I'll make different choices, but uh, in the short run, I think it was the right, absolutely the right move to be flexible about it. In my other course, my economics of education course, which was very, you know, 50 50 people, a very interactive class, that was a much more difficult challenge. So uh, I set up a small studio in my in my office in my um, department at A&M and I filmed my content for the class my lecture content uh, so that the students could watch it asynchronously and again expecting students to be able to zoom in uh, and sit there for an hour and 15 minutes I think is is challenging I think we've all learned we've all we all have limits of how long we can stare at, at a screen or a webcam and so uh, that that just wasn't gonna work and so uh, in the same way as I try to make my principles of micro videos short, I tried to make these kind of bite-sized pieces of material, you know, max 10 to 15 minutes, though sometimes it was hard to get the concept across in that amount of time. And then I'd la- allowed the students to watch it uh, at their leisure. And then we'd have twice weekly check-ins at our, at our usual times. And again, being understanding, I had students whose parents had been laid off and they had to go and, and get jobs themselves. And so trying to find ways for them to stay engaged. I used uh, a discussion software. Uh, called Packback, which I really like, um, and I should say I have, I have no financial stake in that. But I just it it has some some clever tricks to it that um, increase student engagement and sort of force them to to write replies that are more meaty than just oh yeah I agree great point. And so that I think kept the students engaged, attached some participation credit to that, uh, and then. Uh, One neat thing I was able to do, and I'm really grateful to uh, my friends in the profession who were willing to hop in, uh, was to bring in prominent education economists uh, for 30 to 45 minutes, not ask them to do a presentation or anything, just ask my students, you know, to come up with whatever questions you have for them. And uh, so folks like Jonah Rockoff and David Figlio and Raji Chakrabarty from the New York Fed and um, uh, Dave Deming, and, uh, and my wife, who is an uh, uh, executive at a, at a large charter school network uh, and an expert on teacher pay for performance, uh, hopped in for, for a little while, answered questions. And I was really impressed at my students' ability to uh, come up with interesting questions, get really engaged, and uh, uh, it made me look good, which was great.
2: I, I, I really like that. Idea. I mean, how did, if you were to rate their engagement relative to a typical... Face-to-face experience for the same class. Do you think you're almost all the way there? some of the things you described, for example, would have been harder to do in the face-to-face world. It'd be hard to get all those people to come to class. So, how would you rate it? Uh,
1: so that's a, that's a great point, and I think that that is a place where we were able to leverage technology for for you know that 20 to 45 minute uh, hop in. Um, there are some students. What I really enjoyed seeing were there were some students who were much more engaged than when they were in person, uh, and you can always tell when when you're when you're an experienced teacher, you're standing in front of the class and you can tell the students who are shrinking in their seat, you know, please don't call on me. And I I uh, sort of take a page out of the out of the business school uh, notebook and, and my students have placards, name placards, so that I can call on them and sitting in the back doesn't doesn't hide you. And as I've as I've gotten older, uh, the font on their placards has gotten bigger, so I can see them into the sixth row. But you know, th- there's definitely the students who are shy about that, and and that's one place where where something like packback, which is which is you know more chat board, there are students who who were clearly very engaged with the material who didn't necessarily want to speak up in class. And having that, I could prompt them. I could say, you know, Sally not a not a real name uh, of a student in my class you know so that was a really great point you raised i want to kind of riff on that for a few minutes do you you know do you have anything you want to add to it and and not really put them on the spot but highlight just how engaged they were um of course this semester highly unusual um and there were some kids who who were obviously less engaged, whether it was for very legitimate family or health reasons, or because of the moral hazard implications of schools telling them, well, you know, you can choose pass fail after you've seen your grade. Well, you know, I, I, we, we teach our students that incentives matter. Uh, and a number of moral hazard questions about about work effort in uh, in classes made their way onto my principles of micro exam. Uh, so I, I think in in you know we're we're groping for silver linings I don't want to say it was a it was a net positive but there were there were definitely aspects of getting students engaged and getting them engaged with you know high profile faculty people whose names they'd seen on on papers that we were discussing in class Th- those things were were sort of a, a nice silver lining on a pretty on a pretty dark cloud
2: on on that point before we turn to charitable giving if the world were to become normal sometime next year which we all hope, obviously. Which of these innovations would you keep anyway?
1: I think that I would absolutely keep some of the uh, some of the Zoom discussions. Um, find ways to to do those things where it's sort of a it's it's a lightweight ask for for for. Uh, my friends and colleagues to to hop on for thirty minutes. I'm not asking them to do a presentation. I'm just saying, you know, come in, chat about your research. Something, you know, we we all love talking about our own stuff, and so come in and, and chat about about this stuff. Talk to some engaged students. I I, I find it invigorating, you know, uh, and uh, hopefully people will still be willing to do that as as the world uh, drifts more towards normal. Uh, I think the other thing that I'll do, certainly in my large class, is. More of the uh, come ask me anything. You know, uh, I'll I'll be I'll be on for an hour on Zoom. You can hop into this in, into this chat and ask me questions about whether it's about problem sets or or um, you know a concept uh, or you know chat about like when the price of oil went negative. Uh, you know, I had a number of students who, especially in Texas, were really curious about what exactly was going on there. And of course, we offer. More than thirty hours a week of in-person help, and the students are able to make appointments with me very easily. But they they don't they don't do it. Uh, I think it's more proactive. Uh, requires more more proactive action from them. And so maybe just the drop in, come chat with me. That was fun. I, I like doing that stuff. And so I, I think I'll absolutely keep that aspect of it moving forward.
0: Okay, that's that's great. I mean, you've obviously done some some very innovative things there that uh, many of the rest of us can learn from. I thought we'd move on now to talk about your work on charitable giving. In looking through some of your earlier research, I noticed that you had a paper that showed that charitable giving fell during and after the Great Recession of 2007-2009, more than we might have expected given declines in income and wealth. Do you expect a similar effect as a result of the pandemic, or is the pandemic just so different than... Even the financial crisis of two thousand and seven, two thousand and nine, that we might get a different result. Uh, that's a great
1: question. So uh, I, I'm obviously speculating. the The crux of that paper, which I should note was co-authored with two undergraduates in our in our research program, Elisa Wolfsburg, who's now at Stanford Law School, and and David Miller, who's in, who's in the private sector. Um, those. The, the, the finding there was, was that obviously charitable giving dropped a lot after the Great Recession. Um, but the question is, is that because people's income and wealth, especially housing wealth, dropped? And we, we know that there's a strong relationship between income, wealth, and charitable giving. I just put out a paper uh, last week with my graduate student, Benjamin Priday, uh, on that very topic. But, so did charitable giving drop because of the wealth and income drops, or or is that not enough to explain the drop and It turns out that we were only able to explain about half of the drop in charitable giving using individuals own changes in income and wealth and so uh, now, this is pure speculation. Um, I think it was an era of uncertainty uh, and and you know you, you you get you get even as the need increases. People cut back on discretionary spending because you you start to worry about your own circumstances, and there's really nothing more discretionary than giving your money away. And I think that that is absolutely going to play a role in this uh, in, in this time right now. You know, when it seemed like, well, this was just going to be, let's close our doors for two weeks and then move on. I think John Cochran at the Hoover institution referred to it as as the great vacation uh which which may be a little glib but but certainly a two week pause is not that big of a deal um but as you know we've seen the the numbers roll in, I think even people who previously felt very safe are are now very worried and and quite probably uh retrenching their their giving, and so I expect charitable giving to drop quite a bit even as we see, even beyond just the drop in income and, and drop in assets, um, and, and even as we see just an, an absolutely uh, unparalleled need, you know, a need that we probably haven't seen in 80 years uh, for, for private sector giving.
2: What do we know about why people give? You know, people often accuse economists like us of teaching people to be selfish and, and, and not being very generous, yet people typically are very generous. Why do they give?
1: Uh, That's a phenomenal question. So it's it's uh, we have 30 years of research on that and and it it ranges really broadly. So we can go from from sort of pure altruism, just the notion that you you just give because there's need, and it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, your own feelings on the subject, which uh, is a very limiting uh, viewpoint of it. Uh, Jim Andreoni, the the great um, University of California at San Diego economist, pointed out 30 years ago that uh, of course we we feel good when we give, and he referred to this as warm glow giving. That that it it enters our own utility function. That that the the very act of giving makes us feel good about it, and so uh, Jim will tell you that, that that's a placeholder there's a lot of things that go into warm glow uh, and they, those things can be can be sort of positive and, and you know you, you give anonymously, but you just feel good about yourself nobody else even knows about it all the way to you give because it get, gets your name on the building or uh, you know in the conductor circle for the symphony, and so there's um, the desire to win social acclaim or to signal to others that you're the sort of person who who likes to give so there's there's a lot of reasons that people give and and I'm glad you brought up that idea that you know we we get accused of of uh, of saying people only care about money and I make this point very early in my principles of, of microeconomics class that we don't we don't think that people are only motivated by money people are motivated by their own sense of of well-being their their utility and we get utility from lots of activities we get utility from spending time with our families You know, very difficult to put a dollar amount on that. Though perhaps these days, I think I I I would absolutely pay a large sum of money to maybe get a break from my two children for at least five minutes. (laughs) I love them very much, but they have they've been in here for two months. But so you know, we we get we we derive pleasure from so many different activities that 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 are outside of the market, and so um, it's a very crude idea to say, we, well, we only care about money. And the only reason people give is because of social acclaim or, or things like that. People are incredibly generous in ways that aren't explained by models that say, well, you only care about what you eat and nothing more. Uh, and so those those models of altruism are very well established in the literature, I think, explain explain people's behavior in, in you know, pretty, pretty reasonable ways.
2: Let me ask you a policy question on this. I agree with you that you know, charitable giving is very important. And we know in the United States, it's particularly important. The social sector not funded by the government is very important in the economy and a source of a lot of innovation on a lot of models of not-for-profit activity. Is there anything policy should be doing, could be doing to lean against some of the negative effects on charitable giving you mentioned? Or is this one we just have to ride out?
1: Well, we do have. So we have tax preferences for for charitable giving. In another paper with uh, with that same graduate student Ben Ben Friday, um we found that uh, we we reconfirmed a longstanding result in the literature that uh, charitable giving is very responsive to tax incentives. The government has limited levers to pull. Uh, the government can write checks directly to nonprofits, which which it does. Uh, it it obviously implicitly subsidizes them through the tax preferences. Though um, the changes in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, which which uh, Ben and I were analyzing in this, because it reduces the number of people who itemize their giving, is likely to reduce charitable giving by uh, by some amount. There are two changes in the CARES Act that affect charitable giving, neither of which are likely to affect charitable giving very much. One was the introduction of an above the line deduction, meaning that anyone can take it of, I believe, $300 for individuals or $600 for uh, for households. That So anyone can deduct up to uh, $300 in, in their charitable giving. But um, one, that's not a lot. And, and two, it's not likely to really change people's behavior. It's likely to be very inframarginal. People who were giving anyway can now take this deduction. It doesn't really change people's behavior. The other is that there's a cap on how much, on how much of your income you can deduct when you give to charity. Uh, that cap has been lifted for, uh, for at least this year. Uh, it, it was moved from 50% to 60% under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, and now that cap has been lifted. So, in theory, you can give 100% of your income to to and deduct it to uh, to charity. Um, again, that that doesn't affect that many people, and in this particular scenario, because there's likely to be so many unusual incomes this year in the sense that someone who's a successful business owner may actually have very low or possibly even negative income this year because of the of the pandemic shock Um, I, I don't know that it's gonna change people's behavior, which is what we want from these policies. We don't want these policies to just transfer money to people who are gonna do stuff anyway. We want it to encourage charitable giving. I don't really see either of these aspects of the CARES Act actually affecting people's charitable giving. So the the levers the government can pull for the social sector, I think, are are limited to um, grants in, in in this case. You know, you say, uh, you know, look that the government can't necessarily spin up the kind of social services that are in place through nonprofits, but what the government is very good at is writing checks. Uh, that's sort of the, the perhaps the primary purpose of of, of government uh, uh, these days, and and so that's that's a direct aspect uh, that that the government could do at this juncture.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And certainly, the government is doing that through the Paycheck Protection Program. That doesn't just affect businesses, it affects not-for-profits. Quick translation for podcast listeners, since we have a kind of no acronyms rule, the CARES Act is a recent piece of legislation that the Congress passed, President Trump signed for economic recovery for households and, and for businesses. One more question on charitable giving, Jonathan, while we have you, what about our own world? Universities and higher ed, we're some of the largest recipients of charitable giving in the country. Are we vulnerable?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of my research is actually focused on alumni giving. And I think that alumni giving is as sensitive to income changes as any other. I think that you have some countervailing forces. There's obviously great need. There there are, we're, we're all very aware of students who are really struggling right now. And my hope is that, um, like AM, uh, AM has set up a, a direct giving for students who are particularly affected I'm sure a lot of other universities have as well. Uh, I think that's a place where one could send donations knowing that it's going to directly help those students. I think that the the trappings of the university, the the, the football for us, beautiful campuses and so on, if we're online, how much of that is going to drive um, not just student retention but, but the ties that's, that students who then become alumni who Feel a sense of, of a desire to give back. How much of that is going to get eroded? Uh, and I don't I don't know. I think that's a 20 years from now paper to write, uh, not not a not a today paper to write. But I certainly think that we are we are very vulnerable. Elite universities, famous universities, have endowments to fall back on. Now, there are of course more strings attached to these endowments than people um, people are maybe aware of, and so it's it's not just a question of breaking open the piggy bank and covering the next ten years of of operations. But smaller universities that that don't have that cushion, I think, are in grave danger, and many of them were already in grave danger as enrollments declined over the past decade. You know, in a time that's where we've had. Uh, amazing economic growth, I think that, that a lot of schools are going to be pushed over the edge. And I think that the higher ed sector is going to look different. Ten years from now in in ways that we can't necessarily predict i don't know that I believe that there'll be such wholesale changes where you know half of the the 18 year old population is doing their first two years online and then maybe finishes the last two years in an in person uh, situation. Predictions are really hard, especially about the future uh, <laughs> but it's I certainly think that the the era of seventy thousand dollar a year not very highly ranked residential Liberal arts schools is over i I think that maybe the era of mid tier comprehensive open access state funded universities may be over the sort of the the, the tertiary schools sometimes uh, i think again i, I don 't I don't love the way people say this, but but directional schools schools that have a direction in their name north northern wherever state or whatever uh, I think those schools may have a difficult time surviving, and what we may see in the higher ed sector is much of what we've seen in many other sectors of the economy which is sort of a bifurcation where the the famous places the places that we all heard of uh, perhaps work at th- those places will survive and attract students because they provide a very different experience and and the schools at the the lower end of of the higher ed sector um Community colleges, open access, very open access places, uh, places that that gear themselves to teaching, you know, three hundred thousand students a year online. They may thrive as well, but that's sort of that that middle kind of hollows out. And and I'm not taking a position on whether that's a a good thing or a bad thing. I just think it's likely to be a thing.
2: Well, you're the cheery voice of still a dismal science. Thank you, Jonathan. I guess twenty years from now, when Tony gets his next haircut, we can come back to (laughs) talk about this. Over to you, Tony. We are, yeah. No, I think it's, uh, it's actually perfect. Um, the only thing I was going to suggest was to ask about higher ed, and uh, Glenn did that, and I thought it was a great answer, Jonathan. So uh, I, think, yeah, we're, you know, I Jonathan, think we're good. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I agree with you 100% because for years pre-COVID, I've been saying in the business school world, the same kind of hollowing out. You'll have a handful of elite schools that are fine. They're high price point, high quality. Uh, you're going to have some lower tier schools at a really low price point in local market, it's that whole middle,
0: that charts mm-hmm. the
2: same price point as the top without the experience, that just can't be an equilibrium. And I think sometimes you need something like COVID to push you toward that. And yeah. if you're going to see it for undergrad, for business school, law school, uh, and universities aren't used to exit, but I'm afraid that's what's going to have to happen. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's fascinating to see. I, I always I I didn't spend as much time on the higher ed sector in my economics of education class as I do normally this this semester, just because I had to cut a week out of it. Um, but it, the the very first college rankings came out. I want to say in like nineteen fifteen, and when you look at that list, it looks pretty much the same as the <laughs> list today. You know, there's you know, I, I I don't think Stanford's on it, but Stanford was only like twenty years <laughs> old at the time. Yeah, yeah. But but there isn't a single industry where the list of, of sort of top firms is the same as it was 30 years ago, let alone 100 years ago.
2: Jonathan, I was wondering if nonprofit organizations faced with the fundraising challenges presented by the pandemic might become even more aggressive in their fundraising efforts. Uh,
1: absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, the fundraising aspect of this, uh, you know, I think... You, there's this is this we sometimes call this the power of the ask uh, you know pe- people just don't give if you don't ask it's, it's just incredibly rare that someone just decides to write you a check and so you, you really do have to ask people I think you know there's been if, if any of you guys are, are parks and recreation fans you know they did their special episode uh, by by zoom all of the actors and they, they raised a lot of money you know with corporate matching I think that the Subaru I think and somebody else matched up to half a million dollars of of donations to feeding america and so there's there's a lot of stuff out there trying to leverage leverage celebrities celebrities don't have anything to do right now and and those sorts of things to put to put that stuff on people's radar I think that arts organizations or people are going to shift some of their giving to, to, you know, social services and high need type of things. I think Feeding America is, is a good one. It's an umbrella organization of that. I actually have a lecture because Feeding America switched, uh, Glenn, I don't know if you're aware of this. So Candace Prendergast at, at a, um, yeah, Chicago uh, Chicago has this great paper. Feeding America asked him to redo their allocation mechanism. Their allocation mechanism was the Soviet style A pound of food is a pound of food is a pound of food. And when you're, when you're up, when your name is up for, you know, you, you get the next shipment, you either say yes or no. And if I, uh, if I offer you 10,000 pounds of pickles and you say no, then you go back to the back of the line and wait your turn again. And so this actually ended up, this was a journal of economic perspectives piece. And it was a, you know, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast and all this other stuff. And so I, I made this this video, you know, for my class out of it. That they they switched it to a bidding system where, of course, they don't call it dollars; they call it shares or whatever it is. And you can save your shares and roll them over. And if there's a if there's a localized crisis, they can they can sort of print more money to that, to that, uh, uh, area. And Mm -hmm. what Pernodgrass and the team and the team did was, was actually show they were able to feed like 150,000 more people per day with, with this allocation mechanism, because you could actually have negative prices. Like, look, you want me to take these pickles off your hands. (laughs) I got storage for it. You pay me (laughs) rather than I pay you for, for this, for this stuff. So, you know, I have, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, faith in their ability to, to to you know allocate the resources uh, and then I think just giving people money uh, you know i, I don't i don 't love the goFundMe model because it's it 's more about you know who goes viral than you know who actually has real need but there 's an organization families family something initiative, and the guy who started it uh, he actually did a podcast with Russ Roberts like a year mm-hmm. ago uh, on econ talk. And it was really phenomenal because this guy is, is he grew up in poverty and, but he does, he, he has faith in low income people. He says, look, they know what they need more than you do. And what we asked them to do is like, keep a budget and like, kind of show us receipts for what you're doing with it. But this is this sort of, um, it's kind of in this give directly model, which again, is, is Paul Niehaus at, at San Diego started this mm-hmm. idea of just give, give people money you know, don't, don't give people a cow, right? The heifer and I like, well, what if they, what if they need a bicycle? Because they need to get to market. They don't need a cow. They need a bicycle. And so you give them money, you have faith that they know what to do with it. And, you know, maybe some one in a hundred people spends it on something they shouldn't spend it on. Okay. But, you know, I think the, we, we, We know the deadweight loss of Christmas, you know, thanks to Joel Waldfogel. And so, you know, it's it really is when you tie people's hands in this way, you know, it's it's um, I think it's way less efficient for all the reasons that we know as economists. It's called the uh, Give Together Now is is the initiative. And the guy's name is it was Mauricio Miller is the name is the name Mm -hmm. of the guy. And he did a podcast almost exactly a year ago with russ and 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 it's really it's it's really fascinating and so so that's where i've directed a lot of a lot of my giving and also at the very happy with myself at the trough of the market plowed more money into my donor advised fund uh and so was able to to take advantage of some of the rise there
0: okay thanks so much jonathan for taking the time to join us today raised a lot of very interesting points both about teaching online and also about charitable giving Just a reminder to our listeners, we're continuing to post COVID-19 related updates to our blog at hubbardobrianeconomics.com. We may also begin posting some material that's not directly COVID related. Please check our blog regularly and please subscribe to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast.